This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I want to ask you if you have your copy of God's Word to please open it to the book of Genesis chapter 19. Last week we finished the sermon series on examining the question of elders. We're still going through that in some of our Sunday school classes. Just a reminder, on Sunday night, October 23rd at 5 o'clock, we'll have a church-wide discussion, time for questions and answers and prayer together. Speaking of which, we are still having prayer meetings, 6 o'clock on Wednesday nights up in the chapel. So if you're able, please come and be a part of that. Church vote on the question of changing our leadership structure to elders will take place on Sunday, November 5th, so please be aware of that. So, with that done, we're stepping back into our study of Genesis, and um, this morning the text is verses 1 through 29. I'm not going to try to read all of that, but we'll try to set it in context, uh, because the next two Sundays we are going to be in chapter 19. Now, it's not a pleasant chapter to read. It's certainly not a pleasant chapter to preach because chapter 19 deals with sexual sin and its consequences. No matter the level of discomfort that I and the church may have in addressing this, we can't avoid it. We can't avoid it, one, because it's in the Scripture. And if we are to be faithful to God's Word, we're going to come face to face with the creation of, of the gift of physical intimacy as well as its corruption and the destruction that comes about when it's misused. We shouldn't ignore it also because of the culture that we are in. Every culture since Adam and Eve has experienced sexual brokenness. I was reading this week when archaeologists began to excavate the remains of Pompeii, the city that was covered in ash and frozen in time in A.D. 79 when Mount Vesuvius erupted. As they began moving away the ash to examine the city, they found pornographic images on walls. Sexual brokenness is nothing new. And our culture is obviously no different. See, our hearts are tempted towards sin. That's a result of the fall. We are attracted to sin like metal is pulled toward a magnet. And today's society is proliferated with images that entice us to sin. And in fact, images and messages that say any sort of sexual sin is fine as long as you are following your desires and are fulfilled. Now, as we begin discussing this topic, I want to begin with a very positive, that physical intimacy is a gift from God that is meant to be opened and experienced in marriage between one man and one woman. That's God's design. That's the the packaging of this good gift. Opening this gift any other way, whether it be in premarital intercourse or homosexuality, is opening Pandora's box and would only bring pain and shame. Case in point is Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Chapter 18 ended with three visitors coming to Abraham. One of them was the Lord, the other were two angels. And God told Abraham that he was about to go down and see that, and to see for certain the cry that had risen to him against Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, God is a just judge. And in that theophany, he is telling us he is going to judge rightly, not based on secondhand information, but on what he sees and knows. So Abraham begins pleading. He begins bargaining with God. And he gets down where he says, Lord, if there are just ten righteous people, spare the city. And God says, if there are ten righteous, I will. Chapter 9, 19 picks up where two angels appear in the city gate of Sodom. We'll read just a little bit. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. Do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But They said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has, made, he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now, some have argued that when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, that homosexuality was not the real issue in Sodom. They make the argument that the real issue were the other sins that the city was committing. Now, to be fair, Sodom was guilty of other sins. Scripture shows us this. For example, they were guilty of a lack of justice under the pretense of worship. The passage that Jessica read earlier shows this. God refers to Judah as if they are Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, I've had enough of your sacrifices. In other words, you're ignoring justice. You're ignoring the oppressed. Indeed, that was one of the reasons that Sodom was judged. They were also judged because of moral and ethical laxity. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verse 14. Jeremiah said, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like sodomy and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. This speaks of a broad spectrum of sexual sin, of moral and ethical laxity that characterized Sodom. They were also guilty of the disregard for the needy. 
Ezekiel 16, 49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. But they did not aid the poor and the needy. All these things were true of Sodom. But there can be no denying that sexual sin, specifically homosexual sin, was part of the reason of Sodom's destruction. I mean, in what I read earlier in verses 5 through 7, where the men said, bring out your strangers, Lot, that we may know them. The word know there is a euphemism for intercourse, for physical intimacy. So it is clear that this falls under the category of homosexual sin. Now, some would agree that, yeah, that was the issue. But they would say the real problem was that, it, that this was not expressed in a committed relationship that would have been consensual. In fact, they go on to argue that the New Testament doesn't say that homosexuality is a sin. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is folly. The four passages I've listed up on the screen show that the Bible is consistent in this. And it's clear that when we look at Sodom, we are looking at a corrupt city. It's a city where up was down and wrong was considered right. An example is that the city was considered to be a place of safety. Strangers didn't want to be out in the open country overnight. The risk of physical harm was too great. But to show how twisted Sodom was, the city becomes a place of danger for these strangers who enter. The home was to be a place of security and safety, but Lot's home is surrounded and attacked by a mob. In fact, the sin of Sodom is characterized in three ways. It was perpetual. Look at verse 4. When the men of the city come, notice it's both young and old. This had become a pattern of sin that was being passed down from the older men to the younger. It was pervasive. Notice at the end of verse 4, to the last man. This was not just a small group. And how large Sodom was, we don't know for sure. But this shows that the sin was pervasive. And notice finally, it was shameless. Bring them out. We're not hiding what our intent is. This is what we want to do. You see, one of the signs that sin is running its course through a society is that shame disappears. Where there's no sense of shame. Now the question is, how did it get this way? And the answer is gradually. No culture changes overnight. No society disintegrates immediately. It's a process that happens over time where sin begins to corrode like rust attacks metal. And then the corrosion picks up speed. And this change happens when there is a shift, when morality, when right and wrong becomes determined by desire. Any society is on shaky ground. When there is a change where right and wrong is not determined by God or any other external thing, but when ethics, especially sexual ethics, are determined by the individual based on desire, that culture is on dangerous ground. Because one of the issues that comes up, if right and wrong is based on desire, on what I want, where are the boundaries? 
if desire is the sole arbitrator of truth, how can you tell one person your desire is wrong and yours is right? Because there's no external standard anymore. It's simply what we desire. And that is why our fear for Western culture and that we are going to continue this slide because when desire is the sole measure of truth, of right and wrong, you have no way to say that any desire is wrong. What about desire? What do we do then when we have desires that do not line up with what God wants? What do we do? You know, there's often a great debate. Does homosexuality reside in choice or desire? To me, that's almost a moot point because we all have sinful desires. So the question for any of us, whether we be hetero or homosexual, is this. What will we do with that desire? What will we do with desires that are outside of God's plan? Whether it be pornography, an affair, sex before marriage. You see, the question for the believer is this. Will we give in to that desire or will we seek to do what God wants? And in the area of sexual purity, there are two options. One, chastity before marriage. That's God's intent. And the other is faithfulness in marriage between one man and one woman. But I recognize that for many, the rebuttal is this. That's fine for heterosexuals. They have the option of marriage. But for the Christian who struggles with same-sex desires, marriage may not be an option. So they argue that's not fair to have this desire and to say there's no way to fulfill that. Now behind that response is the idea that in order to have a full life and to reach your potential, then you must marry and have physical intimacy. Anything less than that is viewed as being less than being fully human. In other words, the idea now is that if I'm not able to give expression to my desires, then I am less than human. I would ask you if you take that line of thinking to consider Jesus. We would be hard-pressed to argue that Jesus is not the model of fulfilled humanity. I mean, would you not say that Jesus lived life according to God's will? And that he was perfect. And yes, he was a man acquainted with sorrows. But he, is he not the expression of what life is and what it means to be fully human? But yet Jesus never married. Jesus never experienced physical intimacy. You see, the confusion comes because we define our identities now based on our desires. There was a period where, and you can follow this sociologically, where identity was determined by family or where you were from. Identity was at one time determined then by work, by what you produced. But now identity is determined by desire. We say, that is who I am. But for the believer, we need to recognize that it is our relationship with God that defines us. We are more than our desires. That is the hope of the gospel. That we see that we are made in the image of God. And even though that image is tarnished because of sin, Jesus restores that relationship. And that is the message that we must carry to the world. We must be those who carry a message of hope and not condemnation. Not hatred, but love. Not judgment, but Jesus. 
You see, for there are many who, who identify as homosexual. They won't have anything to do with any Christian because they are tainted by images of bigotry and angry words. Now, please understand, I am not saying for one moment we compromise the truth, but I'm saying that we live it out consistently to speak the truth in love. See, that's where we encounter a problem. Tolerance has been redefined. Tolerance is no longer saying, I disagree, but you have the right to do that. Now tolerance is defined as giving approval to what a person may be doing. Which leads us to Lot. See, Lot is a picture of a confused man. He does a good thing in extending hospitality to these visitors. At the time, I don't think Lot knew they were angels. Now, obviously, he found out later when they acted in a supernatural way to blind the mob. But Lot does a good thing. He brings them in. He offers them shelter. That was hospitality. That's something that God favors and is pleased. But then this same man turns around and in verse 8, he offers his daughters to the mob. What? That's a picture of moral confusion. On one hand, you extend hospitality. You do what God would have you do. And then you turn around and do this horrible thing. And the irony is, is that Lot had settled in Sodom. Notice that he's living there. He has a house. Abraham's still living in a tent. Lot's at the city gate in verse 1, the place of business and leadership. Lot is trying to integrate with the people of Sodom. But the irony is, when you look at verse 9, he's not accepted. This fellow came here as a visitor. Now he's acting as the judge. It's like Lot wanted this acceptance, but he's being rejected by the very people he sought approval from, even within his family. Later on when the angels tell Lot to get out and they ask, do you have anyone else, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, get them out of this place? Lot says, I've got some future sons-in-laws. Let me tell them. Look at verse 14. Lot goes to his future sons-in-laws who were about to marry his daughters. He says, get out of here. The Lord's about to destroy the city. Look at their response to him. They thought he was joking. There's no way. Lot, you're crazy. This is a picture of a divided soul. He wants to do what is right, but he ends up doing what will cause him to fit in and to be accepted. Therefore, in verses 15 and 16, when he is told to leave the city notice at the beginning of verse 16 he lingered he didn't rush out now with this in mind there are two things that I want to address church we must be light and show the love of Christ speak the truth in love but realize we will still not meet the approval of our culture we must not seek that Speak the truth in love, but recognize that if there is a point where the church in America will be persecuted, this is it. But I also want to say a word to the confusion that some families experience. And I'm talking about the confusion when they have a loved one, whether it be a son, grandson, niece, or nephew, that comes out and identifies as being gay. They feel this confusion because they don't know what to do. They feel torn. They love the Lord. They know what the Word teaches, but they love this. This is their flesh and blood. 
And it's a struggle because you don't know where to draw the lines. You don't know how to show care. And I'll be up front with you. There's no easy answer in how to navigate this. But I would encourage you to keep what I call the two C's in mind. Communication and compassion. Keep the doors of communication open as much as you can. To talk with them, hear them, listen to them. To show love, remind them that they are loved. Boundaries may have to be drawn. But keep striving to talk and to love. And keep in mind that God is always at work. Because in this passage we not only see a city that is, is condemned, a man who is confused, but we see a God who is righteous. God does exactly what he said he would do. He went to Sodom and he found it wanting. And, and this is what struck me as I was reading this and reading the passages that I saw earlier. When you go back through what it says, like this disregard for the needy, and how God says we should care for the sojourner, the alien, the immigrant. I thought, you know what? I'm going to say this word here. That sounds very liberal, doesn't it? God wants us to care for the immigrant. To care for the needy. To care for those that are seeking help. But then you read where God condemned Sodom for homosexual sin. And that sounds very conservative. And I was reminded, church, God does not fit neatly into our little categories of liberal and conservatism. God stands over both. He is the righteous judge who sees. And even in this judgment upon Sodom, he acts compassionately because as you read on in this passage, Lot says, I can't make it to the hills. Let me go to this little city over here, this little city called Zor. And God grants that. He allows this, this measure of grace. And also keep in mind that Lot, we are told in the book of 2 Peter, was a preacher of righteousness. There was opportunity for repentance before judgment came. So our hope is in God who, yes, He is just and righteous and He is gracious and that's where we look to. These are difficult times. And the story of Sodom reminds us that God is not mocked. And it reminds us that we are called to be salt and light in this world. To speak the truth and to show the love of Christ. Let's endeavor to do that. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the grace that you give us. And Lord, even as we look at, as we look at circumstances, as we look at things that are, are very troubling, we ask for your help that you would lead us, that we might navigate these issues wisely and graciously. Give us insight, Lord. Help us to preach the gospel, to show it in word and deed. Father, it's a warning. And Lord, I thank you that you are gracious to all who will call out to you. Lord, 
In some way, every one of us struggles because we are all in some manner sexually broken. So we ask you, O Lord, to help us to bring healing and to be instruments of your healing. Father, as we seek to navigate how we can show love to those who have chosen a, and going down a lifestyle that we see as contrary to your word, help us to, to keep communication and compassion open. And Father, work through us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.